Would you remain standing and pray with me? Father, we pray that you would meet us today in the preaching of your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us to prepare our hearts for your message from the book of Acts. May we receive it with warm hearts and gladness, and may we nurture it in our hearts, and may it produce fruit by your Spirit's power, a hundredfold and sixtyfold and thirtyfold in our lives, and may our lives become beacons for your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Do this for us this morning, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week, as I mentioned, uh, as we go throughout the book of Acts, we see that the mission that Jesus gave the church, the mission to proclaim the good news about him and God's kingdom from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, that mission will require the church to stand for and against culture at the same time. And this is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 3, which we didn't have read for us, and it's what we see in Acts chapter 4. And this is not surprising because this is, this is not the way of Jesus' life. Jesus' life was one that modeled an approach to the kingdom of God that was de- demonstrably for his culture and his people, but yet at the same time it stood against his culture and his people. Before his death, Jesus spent three years preaching the kingdom of God, coming on earth, and for three years he proclaimed that God's kingdom will come. He was enacting the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. For three years, he was demonstrating what life looks like in heaven with God, submitted to God, life and flourishing and peace. Jesus, wherever he went, showed people what it looked like when the creator of all things took a hold of this broken and twisted world to do something new, something totally new, to heal and restore, to forgive and to reconcile. And throughout the Gospels, we see this. We see that Jesus is for the culture in these radically new ways of healing and restoration. We have a leopard. A leopard. (laughs) That would have been interesting. That would have been a story in another Gospel that we don't have. But we have a leper. We have a leper in the Gospels. And he is healed. He's restored. We have a prostitute whom the community would not forgive, and by Jesus, she's forgiven. We have a demoniac man who is enslaved to dehumanizing powers and habits, and he is set free and restored. We have a woman with an issue of blood who is ostracized from her family and from her community, and she is healed and restored to family and community. This is what it looks like in the Gospels when Jesus is for people. When he's for the culture. This is what it looks like when the good news of Jesus breaks on to this broken world. It causes life and vitality to issue forth. You see, Jesus came to the twisted, the broken, the marginalized, and the powerless situations, places, and people of this world, of his culture, of our culture, and he preached and enacted God's kingdom. A kingdom characterized by true life and joy and healing and justice. This is the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. Yet when you, are, when you face 
a culture like this, when you are for a culture in this way, in the way of Jesus, when you are for its people in these life-giving, these radically subversive and life-giving ways, you run up against the culture as well. And this is what we see Jesus doing. He runs up against the principalities and powers that are behind every fallen and every broken human culture. And he runs up against and is opposed to the power holders of that culture. Isn't this what we saw in the Gospels? For after proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom for three years, the powers of this world refused to accept it any longer. They refused to entertain this threat. And they crucified Jesus. They rejected his claim and his message. But then in a surprise move, in one of the most surprising moves of all, God rejected their rejection. He raised Jesus from the dead, put breath back into his lungs. And that's where we end in the Gospels. Then in Acts 1, Jesus ascends into heaven and is enthroned as king over all the earth. And in Acts 2, he pours out his spirit on all followers. And he says to them, go, go out and carry on what I have begun to do, what I have begun to preach and to teach and to enact in this world. Go and continue my kingdom work. Silver, I have no gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's resurrection language. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping. He stood up and walked. And walking, he came into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. This is the good news. This is the new life. That Jesus brings into the world. This is what he's commissioned the church to do. To be agents of his life-giving power in this world. And what we see at work here is the very power of God to raise the dead. The very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is at work doing a new thing through this spirit-energized community. The church. And this power, this power to do a new thing is flowing through Peter and John. And it flows through every church that's been submitted to Jesus. And it does something radically new. New life. Broken things are put back together. Broken relationships are reconciled. People with marred bodies are healed. And we've seen that kind of healing here at Christ Church. We've seen broken relationships be healed. I mean, I don't know how we don't read this and just like stand back in awe and just say, wow, wow. Because isn't this what we all desire to take place in our own lives? Isn't this what we desire for our world? Isn't this what every great human story is trying to tell, both ancient and modern, no matter whether it's this culture or some other culture, all stories are trying to tell us what true life looks like and how we can get it. And here we have it. Right before our eyes, we have the lame made to walk again. We have the dead brought back to life. This healing and restoring of what has been broken is what every human longs for in one way or another. To heal and restore, to forgive and reconcile, to be loved and to belong. This is what Jesus came to enact. This is what he came to do for us, for human culture. And this is what we see Peter and John and the church continue to do here in Acts 3 and 4 and throughout the book. 
They're continuing the work of Christ. They continue Jesus' work of being for the culture and its people by being agents of Jesus' life-giving power given to them through the Spirit. And now we come to Acts 4, which Rebecca read so well for us. And here we see Peter and John running up, just like Jesus, running up against the culture, opposed to it. And in fact, the culture comes to oppose them. They're not exactly looking for a fight in the temple. But the temple guards, the priests, and the Sadducees, they can't stand this message of Jesus being proclaimed any longer. And so they send people to arrest them, to suppress them. So they don't go looking for a fight, but the culture comes to oppose their work of healing and restoration. And we might ask, why in the world would anyone do that? Why would someone want to stop people who can heal the lame? Who can preach and actually communicate the forgiveness of God? Why would anyone get angry at that? Who would not rejoice if you could walk into a hospital and heal the sick? Wouldn't everybody be happy? Wouldn't everybody want to encourage that work to continue on? And so we have to ask, why in the world would people get angry? Look at verse 1 of chapter 4 in the book of Acts. Or just listen with me. And as they were speaking to the people, that's John and Peter, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. There's the answer. They were greatly annoyed. They were disturbed. They were worn out. They were at their wit's end with Peter and John. They were tired of this name Jesus coming up. I thought They thought they killed him already. Why does he keep bothering us? They were so annoyed. Why? Look at the last phrase of verse 2. They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. These folks, the priests and the Sadducees, these were the aristocrats, the landed gentry, the, the oligarchs, the technocrats of their day. They were the ones in power. These folks were annoyed because the resurrection of the dead was this radical idea, this revolutionary idea. And we, we, often, we often miss how radical of an idea the resurrection of the dead is in our day and age because if we believe in it, people will think we're superstitious or simple-minded in our culture and we're, it's not considered a legitimate idea, the dead being raised. But in the ancient world, in ancient Palestine, this was a dangerous idea. This was a subversive idea. This was a revolutionary idea. It was world-changing. And if we're honest, if we really believe the resurrection of the dead, it continues to be world-changing in our own cultures. Resurrection, you see, is the belief which declares that the one and only true and living God is going to restore all things. He's going to turn the world back. So it's right side up again. This is why the people who are in power are so worked up. Because if God is turning the world right side up again, that means it's currently upside down. And if God suddenly and drastically restores all things, sets everything right, the current powers that be can't guarantee their place in the world to come. Because they're the ones managing the world as it is. The world that's upside down. And if God is going to do a new thing and act in a new way and turn the world right side up, there's no guarantee that they will be in power on the other side. 
And they have vested interest in the world as it is and the way they want it to be. And that's why these rulers become angry. You see, this guy Peter, who keeps standing up in front of enormous crowds, day of Pentecost, 3,000 came to repentance and faith. How many more were there? Here, 5,000 come. How many more were there? This guy Peter stands up in front of these enormous crowds, and he's saying that this healing, this restoring of the world is here in Jesus. The resurrection of the dead is here in Jesus, and it's available to you. This man who is was crippled, who has been healed, is a sign, a testimony that that power is legitimately here. And this is bad news. Bad news for the Sadducees and the priests who currently hold on to power and desire to maintain the status quo in Jerusalem. This is bad news for them. Because this is the same court that only a little more than two months ago tried Jesus and had him crucified. How can this be? We can't allow this to continue on, is their thought. There's no way. And the only thing that holds them back from killing Peter and John is the people. They cannot deny that a miracle took place. And that just reveals to us that their true desire is to maintain power at any cost. They're not going to upset the crowd. But yet they're going to try to work behind the scenes to suppress this message going out any further. And so as the church moves out from Jerusalem with the good news of Jesus, like Jesus, it works for its culture to bring life and healing, forgiveness and reconciliation, and at the same time, it will work against its culture. It will find itself in opposition to the power holders that be who govern the way of life as it is. And so in this, you can feel the tension in Acts 4 that was read for us. Listen to verse 6. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power? By whose name did you do this? And in response, Peter boldly restates the claim that he said on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, that he said right after healing the man in Acts 3, he states it again, that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he began to do a radically new thing. He began the great process of healing and restoration that will culminate in a transformed creation and the general resurrection of all believers to a glorious embodied life on this earth that will be fully healed. And that's the stuff of legends. That's the stuff of myths. That's what every human heart in a broken world longs for. And Peter is saying, we know the true story. Peter is saying what happened to this crippled man is a sign. It's an anticipation of that glory to come. It's a sign that Jesus Christ is the key. He is the only way to salvation. He's the only way to restoration. He's the only way to healing. And it's actually necessary, Peter says, it's actually necessary to call upon the name of Jesus in faith and repentance if you want to benefit from this salvation, if you want to benefit from this healing work of God, this new work of God in the world. And so can you see Peter in that moment? He's fully accepting of the cost. You don't stand before the court that just tried your master, your teacher, 
only two weeks or two months before and crucified him. You don't stand before that court and proclaim in defiance the resurrection of the dead. You don't stand in front of that court not knowing the cost. These men counted the cost. They knew what it was to stand there and to embrace this reality that Jesus was alive from the dead and that God was doing a new thing in this world. And they knew that there was a very real chance that they too would be crucified. And with that recognition, he boldly claims, you guys crucified Jesus, the source of life. You killed, but God raised him from the dead. And even God in this moment is not vengeful. He's offering you forgiveness. Call upon the name of Jesus and repent and turn and be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. You see, for all Peter knew, he was going to meet the same fate as Jesus that day. Yet filled with the Spirit, and that's so key here and so key throughout Acts, and it is key to our lives if we really desire to further the mission of God here in Winston-Salem, is he was filled with the Spirit. He stood up to the fallen powers of his culture, confronting them with their sin and freely offering at the same hand the forgiveness of God. In that moment, he was against and for them. Right? The gospel is a gospel of life and blessing, but it's also a word of judgment. Christ Church, what will it take for us to be for and against our culture here in Winston-Salem in similar ways that Jesus was for and against his culture, in similar ways that the church in the book of Acts was for and against their culture? What will it take for us to be the healing and restoring hands of Jesus right here in Forsyth County? What will it take for us to boldly proclaim and enact the good news about Jesus and his kingdom right here in your workplace, in your neighborhood, among your family? I think our passage clearly says it will take courage. It'll take boldness. It'll take a, a certain measure of fearlessness to do what Jesus has called us to do. Look at Acts 4, 29 through 30. Listen to this. This is a part of the prayer of the apostles after they were released. And they prayed, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your servant, Jesus. The word translated here, boldness, refers to a state of being. It's a state of confidence, a state of courage, a state of fearlessness. The church knows in order for it to continue the mission of God in a world to be for and against its culture, they will need boldness. They will need courage. They will need a measure of fearlessness to continue the task that Jesus has given them. And so the church prays. It prays for this courage. Why? Because fear is real. We heard it acknowledged in our reading from Joshua, the children of Israel on the cusp of going into the land of promise. And God says three times, be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Do not be frightened. Because they're going to do a work that on the surface is a very fearful thing to do. Likewise, Jesus has commissioned us to go out into the world and to proclaim the good news of Jesus and his healing work in this world of forgiveness and reconciliation. And that is a fearful prospect. I mean, if we're honest, we have fears. 
I mean, that's the thing that comes up over and over again for me as I study Acts and as we prepare for these sermons, is that in order to do this, it requires us, requires us to be fearless in some measure. It requires courage for us to proclaim the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. But there are two fears in particular that this passage highlight that I think we need to be aware of so that we can address them in the ways that God has given us to address them. And that first is the fear of inadequacy. The fear of inadequacy. Who here feels like they can conquer the world? Who here feels like they can proclaim the good news of Jesus to a lost and dying world? Who feels like they have everything they need for that? Inadequacy. This fear often creeps in and, tell you, and tells you how imperfect you are. You're not up to snuff. You don't have what it takes. You're not good enough. You haven't been healed enough. You're still so broken. How could you possibly tell someone about the healing grace of God when you've got all this stuff going on in your own life? You're inadequate. And this is what that fear tempts you with. You're just going to mess up their life too? You're inadequate. This fear of inadequacy is particularly present in our culture because we prize and we elevate the expert. We prize and we elevate advanced education. There's nothing wrong with being an expert. There's nothing wrong with advanced education, or I wouldn't be pursuing a PhD, and other people wouldn't be pursuing work. But we elevate the ex this expertise. We want to see people with credentials up front because they're the ones that know what to do. We don't really have to worry about it. They're gonna, they, they have it. They're going to do that. They're going to do that work. And what that can subtly do in our own hearts is create this sense of inadequacy. I don't have those credentials. I didn't go to seminary. I don't, I don't have an opportunity to study the Bible four or five hours a day. I don't do that. I don't have the credentials to go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus. But you see, Peter himself was a man full of inadequacies. He was uneducated a working-class fisherman. This much the Sadducees knew, either from the sound of his voice or his use of language or from his looks. They say, we perceive that these men are uneducated, common men, everyday Joes. Who are they? They're nobody. Right? They don't have any education. They don't have any credentials. They're not experts in the law. So Peter was a man full of inadequacies. Not only that, just two months earlier, Peter denied his teacher and Lord. He denied Jesus. In a radical way, he denied Jesus. So if anyone had fear of being inadequate, Peter had fear of being inadequate because he was inadequate. He was inadequate for this task to confront the leaders of his people with the good news of Jesus. And so what's the difference? What allows Peter to boldly and confidently continue the work of Jesus, even though inadequate? It's because he recognized his inadequacy and he gave it over to God and he recognized that the real thing that empowers him in this work is Jesus himself. I have no silver and gold. I have no special talents. I have no special education. I have no expertise. The only thing I have that I can give to you is Jesus himself. It's the only thing that can transform your world. It's the only thing that's transformed mine is Jesus. Christchurch, if you want to go out and transform your community, the only thing you have for that task 
is Jesus himself. And just like back in Joshua, when God says, don't be afraid, be courageous, don't be dismayed. Why? Because I am with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. And Peter relays here that there is no one with him but Jesus. Jesus is the one who empowers this. Even when standing before the court, it is the Spirit of God who fills him, who enables him to stand up and proclaim the gospel in a hostile environment. Peter's words and actions declare that Jesus' presence and power through the Spirit override whatever lack he had. The presence and power of Jesus through his spirit will override any lack you have. It will override any inadequacies that you have to proclaim the good news of Jesus to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your friends. Through the spirit that lives in each of us, we have Jesus. We have Jesus and we have his power to do a new thing, to do a new work of new creation, to heal and restore, to forgive and reconcile. We have his presence and power available to us, and that is enough, and we have to be okay with it. We don't need money. We don't need special skills. We don't need unique credentials to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, bringing healing and peace and restoration, forgiveness and reconciliation. We just need Jesus and a confident hope in him, courage that comes from his presence. But there's a second fear. And this is a fear of not fitting in, right? Peer pressure. This is the fear of being on the outside of the dominant culture. And this fear is particularly acute among evangelical churches, though it's not limited to them. And we could go through a series of questions. Are you afraid? Because living in Jesus and, in the, and believing in Jesus and in the resurrection of the dead is so out of touch with the power holders of our culture? Are you afraid that the new resurrection life that Jesus offers does not align with the current cultural status quo or fashionable ideology? Are you afraid of being on the outside looking in? Are you afraid of being on the outside of certain institutions, organizations, professions? It can be hard today to be a follower of Jesus. And it can be difficult to consistently say the one and only God is at work in our world through Jesus and through him the resurrection of the dead, right? That, that healing and restoring work of God that is bringing restoration to a tired, evil-infested, twisted world filled with injustice and ugliness and deception is here. And you need to know it. Are you afraid? I know I am at times. I got neighbors that I want to tell about Jesus. And I just, it's, sometimes it's so hard to find the right words into a conversation or know how best to demonstrate the love of God in a way that's authentic and not trying to force or, or, or just be uh, kind of tricky. <laughs> how do I love my neighbors well? How do we love our neighbors well? How do we love our coworkers with the love of Christ? It's hard in our culture because I think we desperately want to fit in. We don't want to rock the boat. And that's nothing wrong with wanting to, to go life and for it to go smoothly. But in an increasingly hostile word, world to the good news of Jesus, 
to the proclamations of God, courage is required to live against the culture, to live against the grain or the flow of our culture. We need courage. We need boldness. And so as we close, how do we cultivate this courage? We're not going to explain these things. We're just going to give them. I think they're somewhat self-evident. But three things in closing. And this comes from Acts 23 through the end of of our reading to Acts 31. We immerse ourselves in a church. If you want to be a courageous disciple of Jesus, if you want to bear witness to the good news of God's kingdom in word and deed, and perform acts of love and healing, and to be an agent of forgiveness and reconciliation in this world, and if you want to stand courageous when it calls for it against our culture, you will need to immerse yourself in the church. What does that mean? Simply Sunday worship, and here at Christ Church Life Groups. Those are not just programs. We saw last week in Acts 2.42 that the church comes back and it gathers together and it does what? It devotes itself to the apostles' teaching, so to the scriptures, to the sacraments, to prayer, to breaking of bread and to fellowship, to a sharing in common. And so we have to immerse ourselves in our common life together, and we do that through Sunday worship and gatherings around tables to encourage one another in this work that Jesus has given us to do. This is exactly what Peter and John do. After, after they're released from the court, they go where? They go to their friends. They go to the church. They go to those whom they share life in common with. So we need to immerse ourselves in the church. And then second, we see that they immerse themselves in scriptures, in the scriptures. Their prayer is saturated with the scriptures of the Old Testament. And they, we know from this prayer that they situated their lives within this unfolding drama of God's story. The story of the creator doing something new to redeem and restore his broken creation. They immersed themselves in the scriptures. And they mapped their lives onto that scriptural story that moves from creation to new creation. And at its center, we find a crucified and risen Jesus. And then lastly, we pray. We immerse ourselves in the church. We immerse ourselves in scripture and we pray. And this is what we see them doing when they gather together. They ask God for courage and boldness to continue to speak boldly. And while that's happening, for God to be the one who brings about healing and restoration and forgiveness and reconciliation and new life in the midst of their community. We pray. You're going to hear this trifecta of things over and over again because this is all we see throughout Acts. It's a rather simple formula. We gather together, we read the scriptures, and we pray, and God descends upon us. Isn't that the result? There at the end, verse 31, the spirit of God breaks in upon these people again and fills them. This place shakes, and they continue to speak boldly with courage the good news of Jesus. True courage arises from the presence of God in our midst, Christ Church. It arises from the presence of God in our lives, and the Spirit of God is present to us and in us when we are obedient to gather together as the church to devote ourselves to Scripture and prayer, to word and sacrament, so that he can nourish us, encourage us, build us up, to send us back out those doors behind the cross to our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, 
in our grocery stores and wherever we find ourselves in this world to embody the good news of God's kingdom coming in Christ. May he give us that courage. May we pray for it today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.